Our Program and the Political Situation by Rosa Luxemburg, 31st of December, 1918. Comrades, our task today is to discuss and adopt a program. In undertaking this task, we are not actuated solely by the consideration that yesterday we founded a new party and that a new party must formulate a program. Great historical movements have been the determining cause of today's deliberations. The time has arrived when the entire socialist programme of the proletariat has to be established upon a new foundation. We are faced with a position similar to that which was faced by Marx and Engels when they wrote the Communist Manifesto 70 years ago. As you all know, the Communist Manifesto dealt with socialism, with the realisation of the aims of socialism as the immediate task of the proletarian revolution. But between that point of development, that beginning in the year 1848, and our own views and our immediate task, there lies the whole evolution, not only of capitalism, but in addition, that of the socialist labour movement. Above all, there have intervened the aforesaid developments in Germany as the leading land of the modern proletariat. This working class evolution has taken a peculiar form. When, after the disillusionments of 1848, Marx and Engels had given up the idea that the proletariat could immediately realise socialism, there came into existence in all countries socialist parties inspired with very different aims. The immediate objective of these parties was declared to be detail work, the petty daily struggle in the political and industrial fields. Thus, by degrees would proletarian armies be formed, and these armies would be ready to realise socialism when capitalist development had matured. The socialist programme was thereby established upon an entirely different foundation, and in Germany the change took a peculiarly typical form. Down to the collapse of the 4th of August 1914, the German Social Democracy took its stand upon the Erfurt Programme, 1891. And by this programme, the so-called immediate minimal aims were placed in the foreground, while socialism was no more than a distant guiding star. Far more important, however, than what is written in a programme is the way in which that programme is interpreted in action. From this point of view, great importance must be attached to one of the historical documents of the German labour movement, the preface written by Frederick Engels for the 1895 reissue of Marx's class struggles in France. In this preface, Engels demonstrated, as an expert in military science, that it was a pure illusion to believe that the workers could, in the existing state of military technique and of industry, and in view of the characteristics of the great towns of today, successfully bring about a revolution by street fighting. Two important conclusions were drawn from this reasoning. In the first place, the parliamentary struggle was counterposed to direct revolutionary action by the proletariat, and the former was indicated as the only practical way of carrying on the class struggle. Parliamentarism, and nothing but parliamentarism, was the logical sequel of this criticism. Secondly, the whole military machine, the most powerful organisation in the class state, the entire body of proletarians in military uniform, 
was declared on a priori grounds to be absolutely inaccessible to socialist influence. When Engels' preface declares that owing to the modern development of gigantic armies, it is positively insane to suppose that proletarians can ever stand up against soldiers armed with machine guns and equipped with all the other latest technical devices. The assertion is obviously based upon the assumption that anyone who becomes a soldier becomes thereby, once and for all, one of the props of the ruling class. I must remind you of the well-known fact that the preface in question was written by Engels under strong pressure on the part of the parliamentary group. At that date in Germany, during the early 1890s, after the anti-socialist law had been annulled, there was a strong movement towards the left. The movement of those who wished to save the party from becoming completely absorbed in the parliamentary struggle. Babel and his associates wished for convincing arguments, backed up by Engels' great authority. They wished for an utterance which would help them to keep a tight hand upon the revolutionary elements. It was characteristic of party conditions at the time that the socialist parliamentarians should have the decisive word alike in theory and in practice. They assured Engels, who lived abroad and naturally accepted the assurance at its face value, that it was absolutely essential to safeguard the German labour movement from a lapse into anarchism. And in this way, they constrained him to write in the tone they wished. Thenceforward, the tactics expounded by Engels in 1895 guided the German Social Democrats in everything they did and in everything they left undone, down to the appropriate finish of the 4th of August 1914. The preface was a formal proclamation of the nothing but parliamentarism tactic. Engels died the same year and had, therefore, no opportunity for studying the practical consequences of his theory. Those who know the works of Marx and Engels, those who are familiarly acquainted with the genuinely revolutionary spirit that inspired all their teachings and all their writings, will feel positively certain that Engels would have been one of the first to protest against the debauch of parliamentarism, against the frittering away of the energies of the labour movement, which was characteristic of Germany during the decades before the war. The 4th of August did not come like thunder out of a clear sky. What happened on the 4th of August was not a chance turn of affairs, but was the logical outcome of all that the German socialists had been doing day after day for many years. Engels and Marx, had it been possible for them to live on into our own times, would, I am convinced, have protested with the utmost energy and would have used all the forces at their disposal to keep the party from hurling itself into the abyss. But after Engels' death in 1895, in the theoretical field, the leadership of the party passed into the hands of Kautsky. The upshot of this change was that at every annual congress, the energetic protest of the left wing against a purely parliamentarist policy, its urgent warnings against the sterility and the danger of such a policy, was stigmatised as anarchism, anarchising socialism or at least anti-Marxism. What passed officially for Marxism became a cloak for all possible kinds of opportunism, for persistent shirking of the revolutionary class struggle, for every conceivable half-measure. 
Thus, the German social democracy and the labour movement, the trade union movement as well, were condemned to pine away within the framework of capitalist society. No longer did German socialists and trade unionists make any serious attempt to overthrow capitalist institutions or put the capitalist machine out of gear. But we have now reached a point, comrades, when we are able to say that we have rejoined Marx, though we are once more advancing under his flag. If today we declare that the immediate task of the proletariat is to make socialism a living reality and to destroy capitalism root and branch, in saying this we take our stand upon the ground occupied by Marx and Engels in 1848. We adopt a position from which in principle they never moved. It has at length become plain what true Marxism is and what substitute Marxism has been. I mean the substitute Marxism, which has so long been the official Marxism of the social democracy. You see what Marxism of this sort leads to, the Marxism of those who are the henchmen of Ebert, David and the rest of them. These are the official representatives of the doctrine which has been trumpeted for decades as Marxism undefiled. But in reality, Marxism could not lead in this direction could not leave Marxism to engage in counter-revolutionary activities side by side with such as Scheidemann. Genuine Marxism turns its weapons against those who also seek to falsify it. Burrowing like a mole beneath the foundations of capitalist society, it has worked so well that the larger half of the German proletariat is marching today under our banner, the storm-riding standard of revolution. Even in the opposite camp, even where the counter-revolution still seems to rule, we have adherents and future comrades in arms. What has the war left a bourgeois society beyond a gigantic rubbish heap? Formerly, of course, all the means of production and most of the instruments of power, practically all the decisive instruments of power, are still in the hands of the dominant classes. We are under no illusions here. But what our rulers will be able to achieve with the powers they possess over and above frantic attempts to re-establish their system of spoilation through blood and slaughter will be nothing more than chaos. Matters have reached such a pitch that today mankind is faced with two alternatives. It may perish amid chaos or it may find salvation in socialism. As the outcome of the Great War, it is impossible for the capitalist classes to find any issue from their difficulties while they maintain class rule. We now realise the absolute truth of the statement formulated for the first time by Marx and Engels as a scientific basis of socialism in the Great Charter of our movement in the Communist Manifesto. Socialism will become an historical necessity. Socialism is inevitable not merely because the proletarians are no longer willing to live under the conditions imposed by the capitalist class, but further, because if the proletariat fails to fulfil its duties as a class, if it fails to realise socialism, we shall crush down together to a common doom. Here you have the general foundation of the programme we are officially adopting today, draft of which you have all read in the pamphlet What Does Spartacus Want? Our program is deliberately opposed to the leading principle of the effort program. It is deliberately opposed to the separation of the immediate and so-called minimal demands formulated for the political and economic struggle, 
from the socialist goal regarded as a maximal programme. It is in deliberate opposition to the effort programme that we liquidate the results of 70 years evolution, that we liquidate, above all, the primary results of the war, saying we know nothing of minimal and maximal programmes, we know only one thing, socialism. This is the minimum we are going to secure. I do not propose to discuss the details of our programme. This would take too long and you will form your own opinions upon matters of detail. The task that devolves upon me is merely to sketch the broad lines wherein our programme is distinguished from what has hitherto been the official programme of the German social democracy. I regard it, however, as of the utmost importance that we should come to an understanding in our estimate of the concrete circumstances of the hour, of the tactics we have to adopt, of the practical measures which must be undertaken in view of the probable lines of further development. We have to judge the political situation from the outlook I have just characterised, from the outlook of those who aim at the immediate realisation of socialism, of those who are determined to subordinate everything else to that end. Our Congress, the Congress of what I may proudly call the only revolutionary socialist party of the German proletariat, happens to coincide in point in time with the crisis in the development of the German revolution. Happens to coincide, I say, but in truth the coincidence is no chance matter. We may assert that after the occurrences of the last few days, the curtain has gone down upon the first act of the German Revolution. We are now in the opening of the second act, and it is our common duty to undertake self-examination and self-criticism. We shall be guided more wisely in the future, and we shall gain additional impetus for further advances if we study all that we have done and all that we have left undone. Let us, then, carefully scrutinise the events of the first act in the revolution. The weeks that have elapsed between the 9th of November and the present day have been weeks filled with multiform illusions. The primary illusion of the workers and soldiers who made the revolution was their belief in the possibility of unity under the banner of what passes by the name of socialism. What could be more characteristic of the internal weakness of the revolution of the 9th of November than the fact that at the very outset the leadership passed in no small part into the hands of the persons who a few hours before the revolution broke out had regarded it as their chief duty to issue warnings against revolution, to attempt to make revolution impossible, into the hands of such as Ebert, Scheidemann and Hasser. One of the leading ideas of the revolution of the 9th of November was that of uniting the various socialist trends. The union was to be affected by acclamation. This was an illusion which had to be bloodily avenged, and the events of the last few days have brought a bitter awakening from our dreams. But the self-deception was universal, affecting the Eber and Scheidemann groups and affecting the bourgeoisie no less than ourselves. Another illusion was that affecting the bourgeoisie during this opening act of the revolution. They believed that by means of the ebert hasser combination, by means of the so-called socialist government, they would really be able to bridle the proletarian masses and to strangle the socialist revolution. 
Yet another illusion was that from which the members of the Ebert Scheidemann government suffered when they believed that with the aid of the soldiers returned from the front, they would be able to hold down the workers and to curb all manifestations of the socialist class struggle. Such were the multifarious illusions which explain recent occurrences. One and all, they have now been dissipated. It has been plainly proved that the union between Hasse and Ebert Scheidemann under the banner of socialism serves merely as a fig leaf for the decent veiling of a counter-revolutionary policy. We ourselves, as always happens in revolutions, have been cured by our self-deceptions. There is a definite revolutionary procedure whereby the popular mind can be freed from illusion, but unfortunately the cure involves that the people must be blooded. In revolutionary Germany, events have followed the course characteristic of all revolutions. The bloodshed in Schassestrasse on the 6th of December, the massacre of the 24th of December, brought the truth home to the broad masses of the people. Through these occurrences, they came to realise that what passes by the name of a socialist government is a government representing the counter-revolution. They came to realise that anyone who continues to tolerate such a state of affairs is working against the proletariat and against socialism. It had been expected of Eber and Scheidemann that they would prove themselves strong men, successful lion tamers. But what have they achieved? They have suppressed a couple of trifling disturbances, and as a sequel, the Hydra of Revolution has raised its head more, resolutely ever than before. Thus, disillusionment is mutual, nay, universal. The workers have completely lost the illusion which had led them to believe that a union between Hasse and Ebert Scheidemann would amount to a socialist government. Eber and Scheidemann have lost the illusion which had led them to imagine that with the aid of proletarians in military uniform, they could permanently keep down proletarians in civilian dress. The members of the middle class have lost the illusion that, through the instrumentality of Eber, Scheidemann and Hasse, they can humbug the entire socialist revolution of Germany as to the ends it desires. All these things have a merely negative force and there remains from them nothing but the rags and tatters of destroyed illusions. But it is in truth a great pain for the proletariat that naught beyond these rags and tatters remains from the first phase of the revolution. For there is nothing so destructive as illusion, whereas nothing can be of greater use to the revolution than naked truth. The first act is over. What are the subsequent possibilities? There is, of course, no question of prophecy. We can only hope to deduce the logical consequences of what has already happened, and thus to draw conclusions as to the probabilities of the future, in order that we may adapt our tactics to these probabilities. It was typical of the first period of the revolution down to the 24th of December that the revolution remained exclusively political. Hence, the infantile character, the inadequacy, the half-heartedness, the aimlessness of this revolution. Such was the first stage of a revolutionary transformation whose main objective lies in the economic field, whose main purpose it is to secure a fundamental change in economic conditions. Its steps are as uncertain as those of a child groping its way without knowing whither it is going. For at the stage, I repeat, 
the revolution had a purely political stamp. But within the last two or three weeks, a number of strikes have broken out quite spontaneously. Now I regard it as the very essence of this revolution, the strikes will become more and more extensive until they constitute at last the focus of the revolution. Thus we shall have an economic revolution, and therewith a socialist revolution. The struggle for socialism has to be fought out by the masses, by the masses alone, breast to breast against capitalism, it has to be fought out by those in every occupation, by every proletarian against his employer. Thus only can it be a socialist revolution. Socialism will not be and cannot be inaugurated by decrees. It cannot be established by any government, however admirably socialistic. Socialism must be created by the masses, must be made by every proletarian. Where the chains of capitalism are forged, there must the chains be broken. That only is socialism, and thus only can socialism be brought into being. What is the external form of the struggle for socialism? The strike. And that is why the economic phase of development has come to the front in the second act of the revolution. This is something on which we may pride ourselves, for no one will dispute with us the honour. We of the Spartacus group, we of the Communist Party of Germany, are the only ones in all Germany who are on the side of the striking and fighting workers. You have read and witnessed again and again the attitude of the independent socialists towards strikes. There was no difference between the outlook of Vorwärts and the outlook of Freiheit. Both journals sang the same tune. Be diligent. Socialism means hard work. Such was their utterance while capitalism was still in control. Socialism cannot be established fuss-wise, but only by carrying on an unremitting struggle against capitalism. Yet we see the claims of the capitalists defended not only by the most outrageous profit snatchers, but also by the independent socialists and by their organ Freiheit. We find that our Communist Party stands alone in supporting the workers against the exactions of capital. This suffices to show that all are today persistent and unsparing enemies of the strike, except only those who have taken a stand with us upon the platform of revolutionary communism. The conclusion to be drawn is not only that during the second act of the revolution, strikes will become increasingly prevalent, but further, the strikes will become the central feature and the decisive factors of the revolution, thrusting purely political questions into the background. The inevitable consequence of this will be that the struggle in the economic field will be enormously intensified. Thus, Eber and Scheidemann are coming to the point when a counter-revolutionary movement will display itself. They will be unable to quench the fires of the economic class struggle, and at the same time, with their best endeavours, they will fail to satisfy the bourgeoisie. There will be a desperate attempt at counter-revolution perhaps an unqualified militarist dictatorship under Hindenburg, or perhaps the counter-revolution will manifest itself in some other form. But in any case, our heroes will take to the woods. It is far from easy to say what will happen to the National Assembly during the second act of the revolution. Perchance, should the Assembly come into existence, it may prove a new school of education for the working class.
but it seems just as likely that the National Assembly will never come into existence. Let me say, parenthetically, to help you to understand the grounds upon which we were defending our position yesterday, that our only objection was to limiting our tactics to a single alternative. I will not reopen the whole discussion, but will merely say a word or two, lest any of you should falsely imagine that I am blowing hot and cold with the same breath. Our position today is precisely that of yesterday. We do not propose to base our tactics in relation to the National Assembly upon what is a possibility but not a certainty. We refuse to stake everything upon the belief that the National Assembly will never come into existence. We wish to be prepared for all possibilities, including the possibility of utilising the National Assembly for revolutionary purposes should the Assembly ever come into being. Whether it comes into being or not is a matter of indifference, for whatever happens, the success of the revolution is assured. We can say without hesitation that the German trade union leaders and the German social democrats are the most infamous scoundrels the world has ever known. What general tactical considerations must we deduce from this? How can we best deal with a situation with which we are likely to be confronted in the immediate future? Your first conclusion will doubtless be a hope that the fall of the Ebert Scheidemann government is at hand and that its place will be taken by a declared socialist proletarian revolutionary government. For my part, I would ask you to direct your attention not to the apex, but to the base. We must not again fall into the illusion of the first phase of the revolution, that of the 9th of November. We must not think that when we wish to bring about a socialist revolution, it will suffice to overthrow the capitalist government and to set up another in its place. There is only one way of achieving the victory of the proletarian revolution. We must begin by undermining the Ebert Scheidemann government by destroying its foundations for a revolutionary mass struggle on the part of the proletariat. Moreover, let me remind you of some of the inadequacies of the German revolution, inadequacies which have not been overcome with the close of the first act of the revolution. We are far from having reached a point when the overthrow of the government can ensure the victory of socialism. I have endeavoured to show you that the revolution of the 9th of November was, before all, a political revolution, whereas the revolution which is to fulfil our aims must, in addition and mainly be, an economic revolution. But further, the revolutionary movement was confined to the towns, and even up to the present date, the rural districts remain practically untouched. Socialism would prove illusory if it were to leave our present agricultural system unchanged. From the broad outlook of socialist economics, manufacturing industry cannot be remodelled unless it be quickened for a socialist transformation of agriculture. The leading idea of the economic transformation that will realise socialism is an abolition of the contrast and the division between town and country. This separation, this conflict, this contradiction, is a purely capitalist phenomenon and it must disappear as soon as we place ourselves upon the socialist standpoint. If socialist reconstruction is to be undertaken in real earnest, we must direct attention just as much to the open country as to the industrial centres. And yet, as regards the former, we have not even taken the first steps.
This is essential, not merely because we cannot bring about socialism without socialising agriculture, but also because, while we may think we have reckoned to the last reserves of the counter-revolution against us and our endeavours, there remains another important reserve which has not yet been taken into account. I refer to the peasantry. Precisely because the peasants are still untouched by socialism, they constitute an additional reserve for the counter-revolutionary bourgeoisie. The first thing our enemies will do when the flames of the socialist strikes begin to scorch their heels will be to mobilise the peasants, who are fanatical devotees of private property. There is only one way of making headway against this threatening counter-revolutionary power. We must carry the class struggle into the country districts. We must mobilise the landless proletariat and the poorer peasants against the richer peasants. From this consideration, we must deduce what we have to do, ensure the success of the revolution. First and foremost, we have to extend in all directions the system of workers' councils. What we have taken over from the 9th of November are mere weak beginnings, and we have not wholly taken over even these. During the first phase of the revolution, we actually lost extensive forces that were acquired at the very outset. You are aware that the counter-revolution has been engaged in the systematic destruction of the system of workers' and soldiers' councils. In Hesse, these councils have been definitely abolished by the counter-revolutionary government. Elsewhere, power has been wrenched from their hands. Not merely, then, have we to develop the system of workers' and soldiers' councils, but we have to induce the agricultural labourers and the poorer peasants to adopt the system. We have to seize power, and the problem of the seizure of power assumes this aspect. What, throughout Germany, can each workers' and soldiers' council achieve? There lies the source of power. We must mine the bourgeois state, and we must do so by putting an end everywhere to the cleavage in public powers, to the cleavage between legislative and executive powers. These powers must be united in the hands of the workers' and soldiers' councils. Comrades, we have here an extensive field to till. We must build from below upwards, until the workers' and soldiers' councils gather so much strength that the overthrow of the Abert Scheidemann or any similar government will merely be the final act in the drama. For us, the conquest of power will not be effected at one blow. It will be a progressive act, for we shall progressively occupy all the positions of the capitalist state, defending tooth and nail each one that we seize. Moreover, in my view, and in that of my most intimate associates in the party, the economic struggle, likewise, will be carried on by the workers' councils. The settlement of economic affairs and the continued expansion of the area of the settlement must be in the hands of the workers' councils. The councils must have all power in the state. To these ends, we must direct our activities in the immediate future, and it is obvious that, if we pursue this line, there cannot fail to be an enormous and immediate intensification of the struggle. For, step by step, by hand-to-hand fighting, in every province, in every town, in every village, in every commune, all the powers of the state have to be transferred, bit by bit, from the bourgeoisie 
to the workers and soldiers councils. But before these steps can be taken, the members of our own party and the proletarians in general must be schooled and disciplined. Even where workers and soldiers councils already exist, these councils are as yet far from understanding the purposes for which they exist. We must make the masses realise that the workers and soldiers councils have to be the central feature of the machinery of state, that it must concentrate all power within itself and must utilise all powers for the one great purpose of bringing about the socialist revolution. Those workers who are already organised to form workers and soldiers councils are still very far from having adopted such an outlook and only isolated proletarian minorities are as yet clear as the tasks that devolve upon them. But there is no reason to complain of this, for it is a normal state of affairs. The masses must learn how to use power by using power. There is no other way. We have, happily, advanced since the days when it was proposed to educate the proletariat socialistically. Marxists of Kautsky's school are, it would seem, still living in those vanished days. To educate the proletarian masses socialistically meant to deliver lectures to them, to circulate leaflets and pamphlets among them. But it is not by such means that the proletarians will be schooled. The workers today will learn in the school of action. All scripture reads, in the beginning was the deed. Action for us means that the workers and soldiers' councils must realise their mission and must learn how to become the sole public authorities throughout the realm. Thus only can we mine the ground so effectively as to make everything ready for the revolution which will crown our work. Quite deliberately, and with a clear sense of the significance of our words, did some of us say to you yesterday, did I in particular say to you, do not imagine that you are going to have an easy time in the future. Some of our comrades have falsely imagined me to assume that we can boycott the National Assembly and then simply fold our arms. It is impossible, in the time that remains, to discuss this matter fully, but let me say that I never dreamed of anything of the kind. My meaning was that history is not going to make our revolution an easy matter like the bourgeois revolutions. In those revolutions, it sufficed to overthrow that official power at the centre and to replace a dozen or so persons in authority. But we have to work from beneath. Therein is displayed the mass character of our revolution, one which aims at transforming the whole structure of society. It is thus characteristic of the modern proletarian revolution that we must affect the conquest of political power, not from above, but from beneath. The 9th of November was an attempt, a weakly, half-hearted, half-conscious and chaotic attempt to overthrow the existing public authority and to put an end to ownership rule. What is now incumbent upon us is that we should deliberately concentrate all the forces of the proletariat for an attack upon the very foundations of capitalist society. There, at the root, where the individual employer confronts his wage slaves, at the root where all the executive organs of ownership confront the object of this rule, confront the masses, there, step by step, we must seize the means of power from the rulers, must take them into our own hands. 
Working by such methods, it may seem that the process will be a rather more tedious one than we had imagined in our first enthusiasm. It is well, I think, that we should be perfectly clear as to all the difficulties and complications in the way of revolution. For I hope that, as in my own case, so in yours also, the augmenting tasks we have to undertake will neither abate zeal nor paralyse energy. Far from it, the greater the task, the more fervently will you gather up your forces. Nor must we forget that the revolution is able to do its work with extraordinary speed. I shall make no attempt to foretell how much time will be required. Who among us cares about the time, so long only as our lives suffice to bring it to pass? Enough for us to know clearly the work we have to do, and to the best of my ability, I have endeavoured to sketch in broad outline the work that lies before us. Abridged from the original Unser Programme und die Politische Situation, 31st of December 1918. Speech at the founding conference of the Communist Party of Germany, held in Berlin. Source, New International, Volume 9, Numbers 1 to 3, January to March 1943. Translation, Eden and Cedar Paul. <laughs>